You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. How many dawns chill from his rippling rest? The seagull's wings shall dip and pivot him, shedding white rings of tumult. Building high over the chained bay water's liberty, then, with inviolate curve, forsake our eyes. As apparitional as sails that cross some page of figures to be filed away, away till elevators drop us from our day. Hard Crane has tricked us. We may think that this poetic, romantic ode that he wrote is about nature, the mention of the bird. But it's not. The bird is at best a supporting actor. This American poet is invoking image to celebrate a work of human manufacturing. I think of cinemas, panoramic slights, with multitudes bent towards some flashing scene, never disclosed, but hastened to gain, foretold to other eyes on the same screen. And thee across the harbor silver-paced, as though the sun took step of thee, yet left. Some motion ever unspent in thy stride. All afternoon the cloud-blown derricks turn, thy cables breathe the North Atlantic still. It's unfair what Crane is doing. The song we might sing to a mountain or waterfall in that language that we're used to, but he applies it to the Brooklyn Bridge. He even puts himself into it. Under the shadow by the piers I waited. Only in darkness is thy shadow clear. The city's fiery parcels all undone. Already the snow submerges an iron year. In Hart Crane's pen, the Brooklyn Bridge, 40 years old at his writing, stands as king, casting shadow over the darkened apartments and offices of the city, offering eternity. Unto us, lowliest, sometimes sweep, descend, and of the curved ship lend a myth to God. The bird moves, but the bridge does not. Everybody else is fleeting like a movie image. Crane is dark and disturbed by a lot, an outlaw poet, an alcoholic, not able to get beyond one masterpiece, really. Bridges, especially the king of bridges in his time, the Brooklyn Bridge, make a logical connection, offering promise, hope, escape. He spent seven years writing this epic, all the while spending times in those dark streets and piers. He moved to New York from Cleveland following his father, seeking his approval. His parents had separated. He never quite got that approval, seeking love as a gay man 
that New York seemed to offer more than other cities in 1920s, but as he found, still was problematic. His secret walks at night, all wrapped up in the bridge. This abstract form of American progress, he thought, was extending Whitman's own poem about the same place, really. Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, Whitman says, Flood tide below me, I see you face to face. Clouds of the west, sun the half an hour high, I see you also face to face. Crowds of men and women arrived in the usual costumes. How curious you are to me. On the ferry boats, the hundred and hundreds, the crowd, returning home. One more carries to me than you, suppose. And you that shall cross from shore to shore, years hence, are more to me and more in my meditation than you might well suppose. Whitman writes, The thrall of commerce in a city, it's like you're on the ferry now with others, but someone else is looking at you while they're waiting for the ferry. Someone might turn a glance at you when they're on the other side. And someone years hence will be in your spot, and they will think about the same image as you will. Just as you feel when you look in the river and sky, so I felt, he writes to a future reader. Crane feels like he's updating Whitman and doing other things, too. He focuses on that bridge that largely replaces Whitman's ferry. In 1883, the bridge opens. 1,800 vehicles and 150,000 people cross the bridge on the first day. P.T. Barnum and his animals, including jumbo elephants, march across the bridge as well. It is the product of steel. 400,000 tons of it produced when the bridge is built in America. In 40 years, there will be 60 million tons at the time Crane's writing his poem. Building bridges and automobiles and for Crane to tell it, fueling escape. Crane's yearn for synthesis is influenced by the products he sees around him, the products of business. When not writing poems, Crane had a regular job. He worked in an advertising agency and at times did well enough even to get a few kind words from his father. Not about the poem, but about the fact that he got a job. The job that he got was, at this point, an established way of commerce, an established profession. The symbols that Crane discussed was accepted in industry, that is to say, products, could largely be made in Cleveland or in San Francisco or Texas and made very much the same. So differences had to come from descriptive writings, breathing life into these products for making audiences aware. Large promise is the soul of an advertisement. So wrote Samuel Johnson in 1758. Complaining, of course, about those advertisements, but the teens and the 20s seemed to bring an American zenith of this concept, advertising and getting at the user's perception. National Oats makes kids husky 
reach for Lucky Strike instead of a sweet. Wash away fat and years of age with Lamar Reducing Soap. Red Rock Cola, the finest drink I ever tasted. So said Babe Ruth. Great work for J. Walter Thompson. That's an advertising agency we still know today on the 14th floor. The high tension of an agency office is only to be compared, he said, with the rush of a newspaper office. Inserts, folds, circulars, posters, full pages and half pages. Crane worked for the Gouda Percha Paint Company account, which called itself not paint, but barreled sunlight. It possesses a luster peculiar to itself, the ad wrote. Marks left by grimy little hands are washed off quickly, without wearing down the paint, if the paint is barreled sunlight. Wipe away freckles with Stillman Cream. Clento Dental Care. Your birthright, clean teeth. Take a Kodak with you. It's the 1880s when you see multiple products advertised. For many years before, patent medicine was the main industry driving these kind of advertisements, trying to establish difference. Department stores, too. A Wanamaker in Philadelphia, Marshall Field in Chicago, Macy's in New York. Advertising volume grows to $200 million in 1880. $3 billion by the time Hart Crane gets into the industry, tooling away. Agencies like Thompson manage it for companies, so they don't have to do it themselves. They get to focus on what they do best, making products or selling things. It all sounds phony now. The talk of husky oats and beautiful soap and sunlight paint. But then advertising ministers to the spiritual side of trade. So said President Calvin Coolidge, It is a great power that has been entrusted to your keeping, which charges you with the responsibility of inspiring and enabling the commercial world. There you have it from the veep-turned-president, Silent Cow, not so silent in front of the advertising agency in one of his speeches, telling them that they were the spirit behind commerce. The Better Homes movement is ushered in by Delineator Magazine in 1922. It celebrates home ownership with annual competitions in towns encouraging citizens to improve their homes. When they're improving their homes, they have to buy things to do so. Herbert Hoover is the new Commerce Secretary and President Harding encouraging people to improve their homes. And that means... Walls, new furniture, high school classes in homemaking help reinforce the ethic. All of this promotes more buying. Where does it begin? Not in the 1920s, not even in the 1880s. In 1842, a small businessman in Philadelphia runs an advertisement for a service of, well, what he just did, running an advertisement. He could do that for you. V.P. Palmer was this man, and you couldn't call him a true advertising man because he was working for the newspapers, getting ads for them. In 1849, he calls himself an advertising agent. He soon had offices in New York and Boston and worked with 1,300 newspapers. By 1877, his innovative new business was good enough that Ayer and Sons bought him. And the innovation they added was an art department to improve ad quality and design ads for clients. The Morton Salt Girl, the Camel Cigarettes, I'd Walk a Mile for a Camel, were among Ayer and Son inventions. Others sprang up too. Lord and Thomas, Young and Rubicon, McManus, 
his master's voice, the dog's head in the mouth of a Victrola. We know that image. Adding humanity to cold products. The Commerce Department's created in 1903. It's called Commerce and Labor. And under Woodrow Wilson, he wants to separate out labor. So the departments are separated out in 1913. And commerce then has its own. Hoover's famous for his efforts in Belgian relief and is rewarded by Harding with the commerce spot. It remains the best-known commerce secretary in history, using the office to promote industry in a variety of ways. A decade where business expanded auto, aviation, radio, even television. In this case, wired closed-circuit broadcast experiments. A department that regulated lighthouses and fisheries, the Commerce Department, was now becoming the most celebrated, or at least one of them, in the federal government. Hoover felt that post-World War I, capitalism was in decline. And he wanted to do something about it. Europe, he saw the SDP in Germany gaining 4.5 million votes. The French Workers' Party, too. And, of course, the Bolsheviks. He had to stop that here. What was needed was a balance between government and business. A management of that business without interference. He sees that Congress passes the Aviation Commerce Act, the Radio Act. Helps usher in regulation. He regulates aircraft, requiring licenses for pilots. In radio, he requires registration of radio stations and frequencies. But he wants to do more. He wants to measure. Beckman and Kruger was a key firm in the busy island of St. Croix in the Caribbean, in Charleston and King's Cross Streets, right in the center of town, a shop and a warehouse just away from the hectic wharf area where the firm owned a ship and a dock. No small matter, though, probably in 1766 and certainly by early 1767, Beckman and Kruger hired a young man, Alexander Hamilton. And by April 1767, despite being just 10 years old, perhaps, Hamilton had become a trusted clerk and was acting to witness legal documents for his bosses that provided an excellent training for the young man who had to monitor a bewildering inventory of goods. See, Beckman and Kruger dealt in every conceivable commodity required by planters. Timber, bread, flour, rice, lard, pork, beef, black-eyed peas, corn, oak, hoops, iron, lime, lamp black. His son, John C. Hamilton, said of his father, amid his various engagements in later years, he adverted to this time as the most useful part of his education. Hamilton learned to write in a beautiful, clear hand. His first job involved calculating exchange rates, charting the course for ships, keeping track of freight. St. Croix was a Danish island, which helped because it could then trade with the French West Indies. Though most people there in this Danish colony were actually English and spoke English. Luckily for Hamilton, Nicholas Kruger, his employer, was from New York, and Kruger's uncle was a former mayor. He worked hard for the often absent Kruger, dunning those who owed Kruger money, berating sea captains who disappointed the firm with poor results. This memo from 1772 reflects what Hamilton was doing. To Nicholas Kruger, your agreeable letters of the 12th and 20th were yesterday handed to me. The 101 barrels, superfine flour from Philadelphia, have just landed, about 40 of which I've already sold at 11 and a half pounds. But 
As it is probable there will be much less imported than I expected, I intend to insist on 12 for the rest. Lumber is high at 18 pounds, and Captain Wells' cargo consisted of lumber, whale candles, codfish, alewives. Alewives are herring. All of the hoops he bought were sold immediately to Mr. Bignall at 70 pence, and the whale candles to different persons. So impressed would Kruger be with his service and others on the island at Press 2 that a subscription fund would eventually be formed so Hamilton could go to New York for an education. Years later, a New York newspaper joked that anyone hoping to be Treasury Secretary should appear in the streets but seldom, and then let him take care to look down at the pavement as if lost in thought profound. The newspaper had picked up on that Hamilton appeared to Federalist New York society an aloof cerebral man shut up inside his thoughts, seldom making eye contact with strangers. He, to his wife in Albany, he wrote of being trapped in mountains of work. The debt of the United States was the price of liberty. But it was a debt that the nation startled in, and it had to be paid. And thus, he put into effect, in 1790 and 1791, a revenue system based on custom duties and excise taxes. In the affairs of nations, in which there will be a necessity for borrowing, Hamilton wrote, that loans in times of public danger, especially from foreign war, are to be found an indispensable resource even to the wealthiest of them. But to pay for that, commerce must be calculated, ships must be boarded, assayed, and assessed. Jacob ladders must be descended. On day two of Hamilton's appointment, he created a federal service to do all that work. He issued a circular to all custom collectors who were appointed by President Washington and approved by the Senate. Revolutionary war generals were of particular interest, and they were appointed John Lamb, hero of Quebec and Yorktown, artillery master at West Point, also a former wine merchant. The respected Benjamin Lincoln, too, joined the service. But Hamilton led from his New York office a system of national commerce, demanding exact figures of the duties accumulated from each state. The numbers... When he got them, at first, Hamilton thought, were too low. From his experience at St. Croix, he knew something about trade, and he knew there was smuggling on the eastern seaboard. He speculated about gunboats. That would lead to the Coast Guard being formed. Letters went out. The secretary needed to know about lighthouses, beacons, buoys, buoys, ship's manifest-level documentation. He wanted more info. On the day he was nominated, he picked five assistants— Henry Knox, Secretary of War, found only an able assistant and a desk to his department. Jefferson had slim pickings at Secretary of State. And also found that Hamilton was covering his desk when Jefferson was away. Commerce won in the new nation. The Treasury Department was the largest in early America. But all the rules for this department had to be developed on the fly. Port of Boston, Lincoln knew the nation needed money. But he also knew the former colonies had a propensity against taxes. Writing the secretary, Lincoln said, the right balance between collecting money without impacting commerce, or as he put it at the time, avoiding enforcement of the new revenue laws so it didn't sour many of our best merchants was the best way to do it. The cheerfulness discovered by the merchants in general doing business at this port in paying the established duties on merchandise evinces me that the system is in general right and that the impost is not on the whole too high, he wrote to Hamilton. 
Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. They indicated there were some complaints, particularly about duties on wine. And indeed, the system that Hamilton set up still remains today. Here's from the current port director in Boston. A lot of things have changed since Major General Lincoln was the collector, but the basic foundations of the job remain. The collecting of tariffs and taxes are still a primary part of what was the legacy of customs service and is now part of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. The roots are still deeply there, thus said Linda Brown, area port director in Boston. The basic way these inspections are done, I can't imagine any differently. You board the ship either by gangway or Jacob's Ladder, and I can't imagine they did it any differently in those days. Some items, such as fruits and vegetables, still come in today as they did two centuries ago, and Custom and Border Protection officers still work to stop smuggling. But one thing has changed, the tools which to use. And it starts with some mechanical tools in the 19th century. Measuring the economy was going on in some form at all times. Local merchant trade associations, various cities have records of important markets. Stock market trading in Philadelphia and New York, we talked about in our first episode of the Ark of Commerce series, was a good measure of the economy in a form. Um, in some cases, for the 1820 financial panic, for instance, to see the results of that, I talked about in an episode uh, some time ago, you would look at the almshouses where the poor were going and had the increase in that, the increase in, say, things like debtors, prison, the customs revenue going to the United States. Um, 1857, you're going to look at store closings. You're going to look again at customs revenue to decide, like, yes, indeed, we have a panic. Massachusetts was compiling statistics about the economy since the Civil War. And, of course, the census is required by the Constitution, a wealth of information designed to make distribution of federal monies fair because you can tax, but the tax 
revenue, particularly if it's a capital tax of some sort, has to be distributed according to the states. So that's the device to use the census. A wealth of information. In 1886, the Bureau of Labor, an obscure department within the Interior Department, released a report on the causes of industrial depressions. It described periods of overproduction and supply famine, demand increase and declines, deficient harvests and cattle plagues, things like that. Depressions, you know, this is a horrible word for us, right? The Great Depression. But when you think about it, if you're looking at a graph and you see a depression, that means a temporary downward slope that then comes up. And that word started to get really bad. And then you saw the word recession being used, which is like a temporary slowdown. Now, we don't like the word recession that much either, especially after 2008, but probably it wasn't that great. There's famous stories of people not being able to use the word in the White House for bad luck. 16 states have bureaus of some kind of purpose like this tracking market statistics by 1884. But would any of these bureaus use the term unemployment, that term, in 1880? Uh, we can type that number in and get all kinds of uh, statistics in our modern world. And you can even get modern studies who have gone retroactively and looked at the past and seen the unemployment statistics. But the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and say, the Cleveland administration – did not calculate an unemployment figure. Where unemployment was even used as a term in this time, and you can go back and see newspaper articles in the 19th century that reference this term, unemployment, it would be used to indicate a government workforce that's not fully being used, like an army. The army is unemployed. You're not using it right now. Or a government workforce. But it's not yet developed in a sense of all Americans that there would be assumption of employment and that there would be some unemployed within the American population. Census questions in 1890 and 1910 asked if the respondent were employed. And in 1910, they even asked what industry. Private groups like the American Statistical Association and the National Manufacturers Association were picking up the slack that governments weren't always doing. In 1895, they're founded to develop measures of the economy for interested business members. By the time you reach the 1920 census, it's decided to no longer include the question about employment in it. That's representative of the commitment of the national government to even consider unemployment. This is where Ethelbert Stewart, a worker in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, thought that if labor conditions were not measured, there's no way to improve them. So within the department, there is a movement. By the time you reach 1920, somebody new is in charge of commerce. He's somebody who's well-valued. You have a quote from Franklin Roosevelt, Hoover would make a great man for the presidency, thinking that Hoover might come in as a Democrat because of his relationship with the president. But Hoover comes from a business background, and he sides politically with the Republicans. They don't see him really as much of a partisan. So he tackles this problem, you know, 1920, people are coming back from the war after the armistice with no jobs. 
Were they lazy? How could that be? They just fought a war. Vagrants? They took on the Germans. Perhaps it is better to say they are just unemployed, going back to that old term we might use for an army. The potential there, it's real for these workers, but they're currently not using their talents. He hosts a conference on unemployment. It's a national problem for the first time, even if it's just in one department of the government. Now, they're not creating jobs in Hoover's department. They don't have this kind of budget at all. But they can motivate businesses, hopefully engage them to volunteer to hire more people. There wasn't a lack of jobs, Hoover thought, just a lack of efficiency. You know, the jobs weren't finding workers. The breakdown and the discontent must be fixed. For example, working workers too hard, that created less jobs for others. So stop doing that, companies. He would work with the steel industry to improve this. The 1921 recession, as it turned out, was brief, but strong enough, you know, hurtful enough for many people. And just such an obstacle for young veterans coming back, looking for jobs, to convince Hoover that measurement of this unemployment was important and had to continue past the recession. Jobs aren't the concern of politics up until this point. Parties don't mention the word jobs in their platform until the turn of the century. The 1890 census, as we ask, you know, asks, as we said, are you employed? What industry? Where anyone even mentions jobs in either a Democratic or presidential platform, Democratic or Republican presidential platform in, in the 1800s at all, you know, whether this is Benjamin Harrison running, Grover Cleveland running, it's merely like uh, they'll they'll maybe have a federal directory where they could link up workers with employers who need it. That's about as far as they go. In the 1930s, Herbert Hoover, the boss of the Commerce Department, now is president and is in a position to put in his plans, but he's got a real calamity. Stock markets crashed. People are out of work. Robert Wagner, senator from New York, passed legislation to measure unemployment monthly. By 1932, the Bureau of Labor was tracking 32,000 businesses to see if they were hiring or not. And that's the way they conducted that survey. Franklin Roosevelt, when he becomes president, will improve Hoover's measurement and bring in Frances Perkins, the first female cabinet secretary, secretary of labor, who approved new statistics, creating, for the first time, an unemployment rate, the difference between workers who had a job and those who did not, but still wanted one, who were actively looking for a job. Added this to the business and payroll surveys that were already going on, plus a household survey that continues through Roosevelt's term and Truman and Eisenhower. In 1959, the monthly unemployment rate that we know today is advertised in the press. But unemployment is a negative measure. How do you measure the positive side? The total of everything. How much is the country producing, both in goods and services, stuff, pig iron, wheat, advertising services, vacuum tubes, electric, automobiles, everything. A man in Minsk, then part of the Russian Empire of the Tsars, Simon Kuznets, 
left right after the Russian Revolution and arrived in New York City. He'd get a few jobs and eventually would get a PhD and excel in the new discipline, really only started in the 1870s, of economics. Well, with this degree, Kuznets gets a job with Hoover's department, the NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research. It's an obscure agency. He has a small office. He is not a powerful figure. In the 1930s, he starts computing, wait for it, a national income. This is the everything number, the value of all products and goods purchased. We must be clear about Kuznets. He did not invent this. There have been attempts to do a national income number going back to the 16th century. But in a sense, he perfects it. He does it for the United States. He does it for a modern time. He completes it. And it's no easy task adding all of these things up. He's going to rely on machinery that his 16th century brethren did not have. In the course of this, he has to make calls. He'd count agriculture, the production of foodstuffs, but not housework. He'd not count leisure activities as an activity worth measuring in an economy. But he would count those goods consumed during that leisure activity. And with the New Deal in action, he'd count government too. After all, if the United States bought a Navy ship, someone made 500000 or so, into the adding machine it went. By 1936, the president was citing Kuznets' figures as he was running for re-election. He bragged of national income, a new concept, and no one could explain it like Roosevelt could. It went from $38 billion to $81 billion. In short, he explained, you and I and all of us together were making $43 billions. And this is telling. He had to say this. That's spelled with a B and not an M billions, 43 billions, less in 1932 than what we made in 1929. Now, he said, it was up to 50 billion, a new word, kind of new. The national economy would appear in Future Magazine and Business Week, economy, not a word very common in books uh, published before 1900. You know, maybe in two-tenths, of 1% of books at the turn of the century. By 1930, it's referenced in 4%. Just ask Google. So you had a president now taking credit for the economy. In some form, this existed in the past. You know, presidents usually in there, what would be a written message to Congress said something about the prosperity of the people or how much revenue the governor made. I mean, Abraham Lincoln in his messages to Congress has figures on how much revenue the government made. So taking credit is not new. And one only had to look at the administrations before Roosevelt. Before presidents took credit and blame, there was some attention paid to who was the Treasury Secretary, and that person very often received credit. Samuel Chase, during Lincoln's administration, was on the greenback, the symbol of credibility, and he certainly... He already had wanted to be president. He was planning on running for president, perhaps against Lincoln, when that wasn't possible in 1868. He did become chief justice of the Supreme Court. And it was during the 1920s that Andrew Mellon 
became Treasury Secretary. Uh, he was, to hear at least one congressman tell it, the greatest Treasury Secretary since Alexander Hamilton. In the early 1920s, he, helped by the Office of Management and Budget, Charles Dawes, produced record surpluses in the budget. A Pittsburgh banker rooted in steel and coal. He lent to Carnegie and to Frisk. He developed a rival pipeline to Rockefeller in Pennsylvania and spearheaded the use of a new product, aluminum. Harding's choice for Treasury Secretary was small. He didn't seem like he would be the one. One might describe him as unemotional, shy, and he had his undersecretary answer the questions when they came. But he would eventually become King Andrew, the subject of press reports, and the one given the credit for reducing the budget and taxes. Of course, as a critic, writer, reporter Horace Liverlight said, wartime expenditures would have reduced no matter who was secretary when a nation is paying billions of dollars to fund half a million armed people and build fleets of ships. And when they suddenly find it's unnecessary, it requires no particular genius to bring about surpluses and tax reduction. Yet the Mellon legend continued. In 1921, the American public, the media, linking the Washington class, made the mistake of linking the man to the economy. Just like Richard, Richard Rubin in the Clinton administration or Alan Greenspan during that period or a broader period. Man, stock market, economy were linked. When things are good, the person in the treasury chair looks good. In Mellon's case, large refunds went to corporations, and Mellon's own bank got $91,477. Well, that wasn't the most. William Hurst was handed a refund check of 1.7 mil. This was considered good for the economy. Mellon symbolized the industry ethic in the 1920s. He worked from 9 to 7 then walked to his DC apartment. He accepted credit for Har- Harley. He accepted credit for Harding Coolidge economy, and that. And he was thinking about leaving, but after Hoover begged him, he stayed on, and that might have been a mistake. And as the depression and the stock market crash happened, the Mellon myth was badly punctured, and in doing so, we might have punctured a bit the myth that any one superhuman is responsible for an economy, but we haven't totally divorced ourselves of this idea. Liverlight writes, two facts remain, underexposed and underappreciated. One is that Mr. Mellon's tax reduction led to an orgy of speculation, which in turn caused the crash. The other is that the fact that Mellon did not prepare the public for gradual distancing from the stock market speculation. He had repeatedly gotten word of a problem but did nothing. When the market uh, briefly dipped in 1928, he said it was not sufficient to stop buying stocks. In 1929, when the Fed warned of the amount of credit in stock market, in the stock market, he's critical of the Fed. 
the news, he said, about the credit in the stock market should not reduce the sale of stocks. But while Mellon got the credit, Hoover's department was toiling. How to know what these stocks are worth? How to know how to count the economic statistics? Well, it starts in 1880. The census of 1880 was an incredible feat, as I discussed in a previous podcast on history and big data. And it took an incredible invention. One problem for the U.S. government was the census. In 1880, it took until 1888 to finish the count of all Americans called for by the Constitution. Herman Hollerith worked on the U.S. census as an enumerator when he was 19, and he was annoyed by the manual process, the tabulation that would occur. There must be an easier way, the son of German immigrants thought, than taking all these sheets of paper from the counters and tabulating them by hand in a central office. He noticed something. on the train, the conductors would take a ticket and punch parts of it. The parts of the ticket would signify the appearance of the passenger. Tall, short, white, black, blonde, brunette. Railroads called it a punch photograph, and it would ensure that only the person paying would be able to use that ticket. Aha, Hollerith thought, take a card the size of one of the dollar bills back then, which in 1880 were a bit larger than today's. They could fit 12 rows and 24 columns. That's 288 potential points of data. Then he invented the Hollerus census counting machine, a large wooden cabinet, kind of like a big tall piano almost, with a press. The press had pins on it. But they were flexible pins, and they would give if the pins met paper and retreat inwards. If there was no paper present, it would connect and give an electric charge. And voila, register account for that data point of the 288. It was not a perfect system. You still had to punch those cards and then put it into this tabulating machine that Hollerith invented. There was a manual mechanism for that. And of course, you had to count, but the counting was much faster this way than doing it with a bunch of human beings to making totals. In 1890, the United States government bought Hollerith's machines for the census and hired Hollerith to wire or program them and completed the 1890 census of 62 million Americans in six weeks. And this census included more than just how many people were in America but also how many poor, how many widowed, how many disabled, how many union veterans, all kinds of good information. Unfortunately, all that information was lost in fires at two different occasions. The company we know as IBM began as the Computing, Tabulating, and Recording Company, CTR, founded by Herman Hollerith in the late 1880s. Machines were part of the 19th century. Every mechanical advantage, anything that you could get from widgets and springs and clocks, dials and metal arms and poles, mechanical ridges and teeth was explored. It was something that looked like a cross between a piano and a kitchen table, something that its own inventor was never quite happy with. But it, and a few other things, lots of things really, 
would get humankind to the moon. Christopher Latham Scholes was a customs office head in Milwaukee, and he was looking for a machine that could print numbers on tickets or blanks in 1868 to make his life easier as he issued tickets and receipts. He made a single prototype of what he called a type-writer. That's what was needed to explain it, because no one otherwise would have understood. But he wasn't pleased with it. Only continued because an investor in St. Louis heard about his idea and gave him cash. Around the same time, a little bit later, at the Cuyahoga, New York Bank, William Seward Burroughs was exhausted. He hated bank work. That's not to say he wasn't good at it. He was. He could check and correct all the errors that his co-workers were making in the ledgers and perform all calculations by hand. But he only worked at the job because his father made him. It wasn't his true love. He wanted to be an engineer. He wanted to work with mechanics. Five years of this dull bank work had him in such a bad way that his health suffered. And his doctor told him to seek a warmer climate. So he moved to St. Louis and took up the work he loved in a mechanic shop, fixing things, but also experimenting on the side. He's not, as far as we know, going to come into contact at all with Christopher Latham Scholes. Scholes is a little bit older. He's a super honest person. As a legislator in Wisconsin, he's the only member of the legislature that doesn't take a bribe in a railroad scheme, where the railroad scheme is handing out bonds to legislature. He, as a newspaper said, returns home with as much money as he brought to the legislature, unlike his fellow members. Now, as an inventor, his designs were just as honest, and they were attracting some attention. He wanted his typewriter machine to work better. The original keys with the second half of the alphabet on the top and the first on the bottom was leading to problems. The keys would jam if pressed in rapid succession. Forget it. It had to be better. But he needed more resources to do it. He didn't have money, and some of his original investors left. So he sold his patent to the Remington Company, a sewing machine company, and continued to work on what he wanted to do, improving the systems with the money that he got. Meanwhile, Burroughs creates a machine while he's experimenting that will make his former employee's life easier. A machine that could calculate. Plenty of prototypes and ad hoc models of this same concept existed. He wasn't the first, but they all made mistakes. He wanted to do something more. Same with Scholz. He's never satisfied. Among the innovations, he takes some common letters and puts them away from each other, such as S and T. Very common to have those two together. Well, they're going to jam. So... Even though these keys are in odd places, the lack of jam, the lack of jamming on the part of the operator, means that the total typing speed is faster. The QWERTY key layout that we know is invented in the 1870s. Burroughs finally patents his adding machine in 1885. And in 1888, it is released as the Burroughs Registering Accounting Machine. It sells a 1,000 right off the bat. Its front is a keyboard with circular keys, white, 
red, and black to solve his own jamming problems. Doesn't separate the numbers and keys like Scholes does. He introduces a dash pot filled with oil to reduce the velocity of those keystrokes and automatically prevent jamming. Scholes improves his typewriter further. Early models had uppercase and lowercase with their own own spots on the keyboard. That's a huge keyboard, very cumbersome. So the shift key in the Remington number two of eighteen seventy eight physically shifts the basket of type bars up and down. So you can get those uppercase letters. But you have to hold down that shift with your pinky. That's hard. Eventually, a lock was invented if you're writing with a lot of capitals, like the title of something. And so we have the shift lock key. And when typing numbers with your typewriter, it's not going to add it for you like Burroughs' machine, but you're still going to have to type numbers and invoices and the like. A tab key is invented so you can get those spaces right. These two inventors not working together, not even only approximately at the same time, do share one trait. They never stop working. They're constantly in the shop. And both had health issues. And both would spend their time getting more precise parts, more refinements. Here's what Scholl said. The machine is done, and I want some more worlds to conquer. Life will be most flat, stale, and unprofitable without something to invest. Burroughs, too, continues to improve his adding machine. How do you get more refinements? That means more finely tuned parts, making the teeth in the machines much more precise, measuring exactly each piece. Burroughs' grandfather, by the way, to the beat writer of The Naked Lunch, William Burroughs. He dies in 1897. But other inventors, Charles Wales, will advance adding machines into an aesthetically pleasing shape with beveled glass sides so that you could see all the springs and contraptions inside the adding machine. It's kind of the Macintosh of the late 19th century. And while other adding machines spit out tape with numbers, Wells adds a visible calculation display to the top of the machine and sold tens of thousands of copies. It's actually a Wells adding machine is something that's ubiquitous in stores and banks during the time of Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. The Remington Company would merge with index cabinet and index card maker Rand Cardex in the 1920s. And the company would have a new name, Remington Rand. So that's how you type, and that's how you add in those times. But where do you sit? Grab an old chair, I suppose. But eventually, chairs for work are developed, because they're a little different than the chairs you might use just to sit for a short time. It starts with the rail employees. They need something special. On many trains doing all of that adding and filing, the American Chair Company in Troy, New York, develops a special chair with seat springs that can handle those bumps so the rail clerk can still keep on doing their writing or possibly their typing. Other chairs with backrests or with higher seats were marketed to help employees with tasks. Swivel chairs. I mean, you get to the point of the 1920s where there's the do more chair 
which literally promised to increase the productivity of your workers. And it promised to maximize executive ab muscles. In the 1940s, Scholl's original investor and company, Remington Rand, and descendants of Burroughs Calculating Machine Companies were supplying new giant calculators to the mill had had moved beyond typewriters and mechanical adding machines and were supporting and supplying new giant calculators to the military for use in World War II. What to call them? Computers. Well, in those days, that word would describe a person or rooms of people that would help to figure out, like, how to get an ordinance to hit the enemy with precision, the right calculations, you know. That's something that might surprise more, but those who have seen hidden figures know that that moment in the movie where they say, let's go see the computer, and of course it's a person. Um, after World War II is over, they want to go beyond just these kind of giant calculators, do a full electronic computer, one that can replace these teams of people or enhance their work. When Rand debuts what they call the ENIAC to reporters, they say it'll add 5,000 numbers with the push of one button. Are people becoming obsolete? A giant electronic brain has started cogitating at the University of Pennsylvania. It's made a vacuum tube like your radio, and it can add up a column of figures a yard long in a second. It's the world's first electronic computer. Right now, it's solving mathematical problems for the U.S. Army, but who knows? Someday a machine like this may check up on your income tax. This catches the imagination of the reporters, and maybe even a little too much. Some of the headlines that come out after the ENIAC is released in a pretty well-attended press conference in Philadelphia. Mathematical Frankenstein, blared one headline. Electronic brain, another. Brain Machine Makes a Slow Poke of Man was the catchy title of a UK-based newspaper about electronic calculator based on Alan Turing's ideas. That leads the U.S. to talk about the scary British, the Brits, <laughs> Brits to build machine outthinking U.S. ENIAC worked with weather prediction, the hydrogen bomb, cosmic rays, and wind tunnel design among other things, in addition to ballistic tables for the United States Army and the United States Air Force. It was so much that the creators of ENIAC had to try to put a halt to it, saying, hey, this computer does not think. No one cared what they said. They even used a term for it, one that came from a Czech playwright's 1920 play about a mechanical servant created by a company. The old Czech word, for servitude was employed in the play, robota, and the word was robot. Robot brain, the headlines flew for an article about Harvard's Mark I that was helping to guide Navy ships. But ENIAC had some real accomplishments. It could change the trajectory of shells faster than the shells could fly. It used 18,000 vacuum tubes. It took up a room. Despite its robot status in the press, it didn't take away all the jobs. There were squads of engineers that had to constantly do maintenance operations as ENIAC would break down often. Remington Rand sells 46 of these units and the firm is employed to do the 1950 census. In building ENIAC, better methods had been found. 
And so, another was never built. At 11.45 p.m. on October 2nd, 1955, ENIAC's power was cut off. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Univax Atomic Energy Computer is used to predict the 1952 election. It calls Dwight Eisenhower the winner with just 1% of the vote in. See, you thought that was a new thing that they did. The descendant of Holstein's system, the descendant of one of Burroughs' investor system, IBM, produces the 650 to offer that Harvard computer Mark One's benefits to the masses. Well, really the masses of government agencies and big computer customers, big companies. 450 units sold in one year. The 50s are really the computer age. The first one goes to John Hancock, Mutual Life Insurance in Boston. Others get in, in the shell of an old textile mill from not far from where we talked about a previous Arc of Commerce episode. American industry was really started. The Digital Equipment Corporation forms first in an old textile mill. It will just make modules for measurement and control. That's what it thinks. RCA and Philco, other companies get in this game too. Bull, Burroughs, Datamatic. These are companies in the market. Already, Herbert Grouch, a budding industry consultant, assured that computational capability was proportional to the square of a computer's cost. Twice cost should yield four times capability. IBM was winning by 1956. It had three-fourths of the installations. It gets in with its IBM Ramac, great at business processing, with a moving head, a disk drive, and a reasonable cost in today's dollars of about 25000 Still, most computers are room-sized. They are mainframes that you have to plug into to get your answers. Your answers, you might wait a bit on your answers from some, either the computer itself or some employee. Government agencies performing huge calculations are usually the people using these. IBM works with MIT to build SAGE, a network of electronic brains that can help guide missiles. It uses a magnetic memory plane that was created by textile-trained employees sewing magnetic threads as the 19th century meets the 20th. So, by the 15th anniversary of the ENIAC computer, the president of Remington Rad was able to proclaim that the past 15 years have produced one of the greatest revolutions of modern times. The computational ability of man 
has been increased by 1 million times, and more than 5,000 computers were sold. They were already in a mature computer age for many, and you didn't know anybody called Bill Gates or Stephen Jobs. In 1964, as Lyndon Johnson won office, we think computers might just be getting started, but that's not true. 64 was a big year for the development of computers. Control Data Corporation, CDC, released its 6600, up to 3 million instructions per second, three times faster than the IBM. IBM counters with making its storage movable with portable magnetic disks so that you can move them between computers. It's 2315 disk cartridge, a whole megabyte. For large systems, IBM comes up with a disk drive that goes up to 400 megs. There were other developments. Basic, beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code is invented at Dartmouth. Everybody, not just the computer programmer with the pocket protector, everybody can program. It will soon be used at other schools and eventually ship with personal computer units. Well, even in the 1980s, I was doing some programming, you know, though I was criticized for being overly reliant on uh, Go subroutines. But it's not all bright for computing. With a French movie, Alphaville, a computer's gone mad and is controlling a town. A secret agent. The, the drama... The drama comes in is, can the secret agent fix it in time before 1964 is over? A program called Doctor is invented. Doctor responds to questions as a psychotherapist would. It uh, fooled many a user in trials until the limitations of the program were reached. Uh, Doctor's responses sometimes became nonsensical. Uh, Artificial intelligence would have to wait, but pretty good for 64. When the Canadian Chalk River Nuclear Lab needed a special device to monitor a reactor, Digital Equipment Corporation designed a small computer. Rather than tailoring a computer just for them, they made it so that anyone could use it and simply programmed that computer for the customer and kept the model, the PDP-8, a mini computer, the first. It could fit in a car in the back seat as the magazines Ad described it. And it sold for one-fifth of what IBM sold for. Still, IBM was winning the battles, especially the big room-sized market. System 360, it was selling 5,000 units a month. Computers then weren't thought about for gaming, but a few users had programmed Space Wars, which you had a spaceship and the ability to fire, you could thrust... And gaming history was made with the first prototype of the brown box, Ralph, where you could play games. You could play table tennis or shooting games with a light gun. That light gun technology was the same being used by the Pentagon to point the various missiles and tests on the TV. RCA and Spectrum introduced integrated circuits. That means microchips in 1967. And IBM eventually catches up with them. Still computers are room-sized. Or best, closet size. That's okay, in fact. The people that use them make a show of the size of the computer that they have. Brag of the huge employee staff they have to take care of the computer. Even the computer breakdowns become legendary. Heroic fix-em efforts. Or at least are expected trade-offs of the computational power that the system has. But that way of thinking 
about computers could not work for a very special customer, NASA. As we'll see, the idea of hooking up computers to other computers is also alive at this time. The military is first. They're very well funded. ARPANET, connecting computers of different kinds, is being worked on throughout the 1960s. Britain's NPL network, Hawaii's Aloha net, but, uh, you know, are, and, and other networks are also being worked on, but ARPANET is the best funded. It comes from a paper written in 1961. It comes from a paper written in 1961 with protocols for computer communication. IMP, Interface Message Processing, is developed in 1968. ARPANET launches in 1969. It becomes global with a UK connection in 1974. Usenet in many computers in 79. TCP IP protocols in 82. The word cyberspace first coined in 1984. The first router in 1987. The first.com, world.stt.com, invented in 1989. The at symbol, long ago invented in the 70s. Website HTML invented in 1989. And by 1991, CERN introduces the World Wide Web. And surfing the net is a thing by 1992. I could share a story <laughs> that, uh, I don't know, maybe people who are of my age or older, doesn't mean much, but for those younger, it might. Um, in 1994, you know, the World Wide Web was still so new at that time that I can recall leaving work early to go see a friend who happened to be at a technical college and to go see the World Wide Web. I mean, I had to make a special visit to do it. He had a, a computer that was hooked up with the university. And we watched on this kind of gray screen with uh, bright blue words on it and looked at various what were called websites. And I'll never forget, you know, him saying, oh, this one's going to take time to load because it's a picture. And you would just watch as the picture slowly loaded and that was completely acceptable and delightful when the picture actually appeared and i also remember him saying oh this website's going to take a while because it's coming from australia surfing the web is cool but a serious development occurs in 1967 when physicist gary starkweather working for xerox um, realizes that exposing the light sensitive drum of a copy machine to a paper is a good way to print an image. You can have a computer write the marks with a laser. It will take a few years, but eventually Xerox will make billions of dollars off this invention, the laser printer. Stuart Brand, an ex-paratrooper and Stanford-educated biologist with no real commercial purpose in life, a friend of Ken Casey, taker of LSD, a wanderer of sorts. He's going to get featured in the Tom Wolfe novel, The Electric, uh, the Electric Acid Kool-Aid Test. 
But, you know, he wasn't, he was a wanderer of sorts, but not without wanting to contribute something. He actually spends a lot of time writing letter after letter to NASA to convince them to publish a picture of the Earth. This is what he wants. Um, he even said, in he sold buttons that said, why haven't we seen the Earth's photograph? I know this doesn't make a lot of sense, but in the mid-60s, this is still the case. Why haven't we seen the Earth's photograph? His movement takes off in college campuses. There's flyers and buttons and people writing letters to NASA. And finally, and finally, NASA does release a photo from a satellite of the Earth, um, from a satellite rotating the Earth. The photo is of the Earth in all its blue-green glory, and Brand was moved. Now, he asks, how do we save the Earth? And he thought long and hard about it. But Stuart Brand was for causes, but he wasn't necessarily anti-commerce. See, he liked the yellow bean catalog. It was practical, a catalog of everything. But what if you turned that concept of a catalog into a catalog that would trade in liberal social values, technologies that work, that could connect the whole world to give everyone permission to reinvent their life and to see what other people were doing and share that information with everyone. Let's say you wanted to sustain yourself by growing your own food. Or perhaps you wanted to build your own supercomputer to rival the computers that the man was using. He would have a catalog that would have all these things. Uh, Buzz, this is Houston. F2, I'm at the 1 160th second for shadow photography on the sequence camera. Okay. Well, the world was united on July 21st, 1969, watching one event. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The man land on the moon. Although the surface appears to be a very, very fine grain as you get close to it, it's almost like a powder. They could all watch it together because in 1962, satellite TV had debuted. It was such a world event. Even the Soviets published the event in their newspaper. You can't have people on the moon and not say anything. So said Sergei Khrushchev, son of the former USSR leader. CBS showed models of the landing in their television coverage in People walking around, what was really the TV studios, made to look like a surface of the moon, up until the real moment when it could happen. When even the staid Walter Cronkite grabbed his nose and shook his head. At 10.56 Eastern Time, Neil Armstrong descended. 94% of Americans were watching at that moment. Duke Ellington played a special song, Moon Maiden, on the ABC broadcast. 
Thanks very much, Frank. Uh, I'm very much honored, indeed, to be invited here today to help celebrate this great occasion. Matter of fact, I'm so inspired that I think I shall attempt to make my debut as a vocalist with uh, Moon Maiden. How about that? Isaac Asimov and Rod Sterling also chatted. But to get there, NASA needed a computer. And it had one. Houston Mission Control had a giant computer filling up a big room, but weight requirements and reliability requirements demanded something else, a different direction than computers had gone at that point. MIT was hard at work on a 70-pound, one-cubic-foot Apollo guidance computer with a disky display, that means display and keyboard, indicator lights, numeric displays, and a keyboard much like a calculator, and a display that was electroluminescent and had seven segments, three five-digit numbers that could be displayed in the base eight decimal. Attitude were the amount of velocity needed for a specific operation. Astronauts could type in over 10,000 commands into this system, into the disky, using verb-noun combinations, like verb 31, noun 12. Might be, and it probably isn't, to read the distance to the lunar surface. 1612 might mean how much time is left in the mission? To make this unit, Raytheon used its employees, 800, um, from its unit that was working on U.S. Polaris missiles to make this moon computer. But size and expense weren't the only issues. Memory was needed for all of the tasks that the computer would need to perform. And they developed a rope memory system. To construct the Apollo guidance computer's memory, textile workers from Massachusetts, not far from wherever you remember in Ark of Commerce 2, uh, the beginnings of factories in Massachusetts, the American textile factory began. Same places were now in the 60s starting to build defense systems and computers. And in this case, the age-old skills of generations of textile workers served them right. They began weaving these very thin metal ropes in and out of cones. If a rope went into a cone, it was one. If it went around it, it was zero. As you can probably imagine, if you're making a rope memory of metal and cones, there is no reprogramming. There is no erasing. It's all stitched in. It took eight weeks and $15,000 for a single program. Women weaved these units uh, working across from each other and seeing what the other was doing through a glass window. Engineers called it LOL memory, but that didn't mean what LOL means today. It meant little old lady memory. And it's kind of a misnomer because it wasn't just old ladies, though there certainly were plenty of them at Raytheon. It was... All sorts of women from different walks of life that made the rope memory. And they were dedicated to the task. They reviewed each other's work. They reviewed it again. There's a story of an executive, you know, 
demanding to know why after a program was finished, about to be delivered to NASA, woman in one of the weaving operations said, let's do it again. And when the executive came down and asked why, she said she didn't feel it was done right, wasn't up to the quality. And these are our boys going out into space. This isn't just some missile. No further questions were raised. The rope memory was good enough to steer Apollo 11 to the lunar surface. Despite getting to the moon and back, on August 4th, 1971, a New York headline blared, Computer is 25, and its users are critical. The computer has made an impact on society, though not as much as it, as it was supposed to. In many applications, it is restrained rather than freed the user. The user has been forced to view his own works through the wrong end of the telescope. It's true, by 71, the computers just didn't have the user-friendliness yet. Stuart Brand releases his catalog in 1969 with a huge picture of the Earth in the front. For the first time, Americans in the world can see the blue planet they live in as one thing. The catalog's filled with products, how-to descriptions, ads for communes and for services, even an ad for a personal computer. The whole Earth catalog was like Google 35 years before in paperback form. So said Steve Jobs. It was paperback hypertext, California tech promoter John Markoff said. A portable library about everything and anything that was interesting and important. It was an answer to the institutions, a reference for the individual empowerment. Agricultural equipment and advice on how to grow your crops, weaving kits, said Kevin Kelly. It gave you, one user said, permission to reinvent your life. Brand had done something else. He had acclimated the evil monster computer, the HAL 9000, or the product of the Defense Department punch card, to the personal empowerment tool of the 1970s, not something to be scared of. His catalog embraced computers both in kits and in finished form. The Whole Earth catalog was published sporadically in updated versions. By 1988, it was on a CD-ROM. The last Whole Earth Catalog was published in 1994. Who needed it, right? After then? <laughs> that we take information for granted should be seen in the fact that this catalog was so necessary in the past. People wanted to develop a Turkish, Turkish cabana to live in the desert, to know where communes were, to know how to grow plants, or to build a computer to help them do serious math or balance their own business's expenses. They simply didn't know where to start. A grandmother, Jane Snowball, 72 years of age, sat down in her armchair in Gateshead, UK, in May 1984. She picked up a television remote control and used it to order groceries from her local supermarket that would be delivered to her. She was part of a local government initiative to help the elderly. What she and everyone else with her didn't know at the time was that her simple shopping list might have been the world's first home online shop. 
With her remote control, she was using a piece of video technology called Videotex. It sent the order down from her phone line to the local Tesco. The goods were then packaged and delivered to her door. She never saw a computer. It was her television that linked her to the shop. This was the brainchild of Michael Aldrich, a British computer pioneer and investor. He connected a domestic television by telephone line to real-time transaction processing computer and invented what he called teleshopping. Today, it's called e-commerce and all of that. With its ability to dial into any computer via normal domestic telephone line and using a standard communications and human interface, it could be used for many applications. It wasn't restricted to talking to just one computer and for one function. It had genuine open market, independent teleshopping capabilities. And you could still watch your TV. All of Aldrich's originating work wasn't lost. It just, when the internet was invented, it just migrated to it. September 1979 was the first public demonstration of his system. In 1980 was the launch. 1981, the first B2B, business to business. Thompson Holidays went live. The first person to sell a book on the internet might have been Charles Stack. He founded the world's first online bookstore, Book Stacks Unlimited, in 1992. This was before the World Wide Web even existed. And you couldn't just put something on the internet then. You had to get people to go to it. They had to be instructed to find it, and they weren't there yet. So Stack got word about his bookstore by placing ads in magazines dedicated to then a very small audience of people who might be interested in computer online bulletin board systems. He put his ads in, and it was a waiting game. Each day, Charles Stack and a very small staff passed time at the office, waiting for someone to see one of the ads and dial the phone number. The technology we had let us watch anyone who was ordering navigate through the site, Stack explained later. We sat there and watched the modems with the ringers turned up loud. It was a week of nervous fidgeting, and then a modem finally hissed and lit up. Stack and his staff huddled around a single monitor to watch this historic transaction unfold. I remember watching this person typing, and it was so slow, Stack recalled later. He navigated just one key at a time. The minutes dragged. The staff waited for the visitor to make a purchase. Stack tried not to interfere, but he got excited and maybe a little frustrated. We couldn't stand it anymore, he said. Finally, we broke in on his session and told him, do you know you're our first customer? Stack had spent a year programming the bulletin board for ease of use. And he wanted to ask the customer what was taking so long. But he decided to ask a more open-end question. Why do you like this service? Then he waited through a very long pause and waited more as the answer appeared on the screen, one painstakingly typed letter at a time. As a blind person, the response began. Now Stack understood what that technology meant for his first customer, who had a computer that read ASCII text aloud and a Braille keyboard for input.
Stack was the first true online retailer, but he had no capital. My dream was to have a bookstore that had every book ever published, Stack said. And he did reach more than 500,000 titles under his ownership. But for all his vision, he couldn't anticipate, nor could he capitalize on the financial community's interest in the internet. If he had, Bookstacks today might be the premier online store. But Stack sold the business in 1996 for $4 million for a company that has become Sendent Corporation. And its sales in a few months were eclipsed by another company, Amazon.com. Well, you know, it's been a long time since the last arc of commerce. And so, you know, these are large projects. They take a lot of time. There's a lot of research and in all the pieces of it. Um, but I'll go over a quick review. So number one was about the stock market crash. A little bit about Edison and his various inventions around the stock market and how it is the stock market that fueled a lot of the inventions. Second was about maritime commerce and how important that was. Third was about land commerce and rail in particular. Fourth was about making commerce stop and different times when commerce stopped. Kind of fitting for what's going on today with the coronavirus situation. Uh, and... This is five, about measuring the economy, about taking measure of the size of the economy. And I think it was a good opportunity to introduce computers as well as typewriters and adding machines. You know, I'm undecided where we're going to go from here because these take so long, but I'm thinking about six being education and seven's being, seven being insurance and uh, wrapping it up there. I do want to thank you for listening. You know, if you like the program, please tell someone about it. It helps. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.